and welcome back to One Last Thoughts, Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups. If, you, if this is your first listening, then go back across the others. There are hours of inspiration and thought-provoking stories that uh, we've amassed over the last year. Uh, and this is episode 71, and it's from a book by Chip and Dan Heath, and it's called Decisive, How to Make Better Decisions. In the fall of 1772, a man named Joseph Priestley was struggling with a career decision, and the way he handled the decision points us toward a solution. Priestley, a brilliant man with an astonishing variety of talents, did not lack for career options. He was employed as a minister for a dissenting church in Leeds, England. Dissenting meant that it was not affiliated with the Church of England, the state-sanctioned religion. But he was a man with many hobbies, all of which seemed to take on historical significance. As an advocate for religious tolerance, he helped to found the Unitarian Church in England, As a philosopher, he wrote works on metaphysics that were cited as important influences by John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham. An accomplished scientist, Priestley is credited with the discovery of 10 gases, including ammonia and carbon monoxide. He's best known for discovering the most important gas of them all, oxygen. A political rabble-rouser, Priestley spoke out in favour of the French Revolution, which aroused the suspicion of the government and his fellow citizens. Later, as tempers flared, a mob burned down his home and church, forcing him to flee, first to London and eventually to the United States, where he spent the rest of his life. Priestley was a theologian, a chemist, an educator, a political theorist, a husband and a father. He published more than 150 works, ranging from a history of electricity to a seminal work on English grammar. He even invented soda water, so every time you enjoy your Diet Coke, you can thank Priestley. In short, Priestley's career was a bit like an 18th century version of Forrest Gump, if Gump were a genius. He intersected with countless movements of historical and scientific significance, but in the fall of 1772 he had a much more prosaic problem on his hands. Money. Priestley, like any father, worried about the financial security of his growing family. His salary as a minister, £100 per year, was not sufficient to build substantial savings for his children, who eventually numbered eight So he started looking for other options, and some colleagues connected him with the Earl of Shelbourne, a science buff and a supporter of dissenting religious groups in England's House of Lords. Shelbourne was recently widowed and looking for intellectual companionship and help in training his children. Lord Shelbourne offered Priestley a job as a tutor and an advisor. For a salary of £250 per year, Priestley would supervise the education of Lord Shelburne's children and counsel him on political and government matters. Priestley was impressed by the offer, particularly the money, of course, but was also cautious about what he'd be signing on for. Seeking advice, he wrote to several colleagues he respected, including a wise and resourceful man he met while writing The History of Electricity, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin suggested that Priestley use the process of pros and cons to guide his decision. Thanks to the record provided by Priestley's letters to friends, it's 
it's possible to imagine how Priestley would have used the moral algebra process. The pros? Good money, better security for his family. The cons were more plentiful. The job might require a move to London, which bothered Priestley, who described himself as so happy at home that he hated to contemplate being apart from his family. He worried too about the relationship with Shelburne. Would it feel like master and servant, and even if it started off fine, what would happen if Shelburne grew tired of him? Finally, Priestley worried that the commitments would distract him from more important work. Would he end up spending his days teaching multiplication to kids instead of blazing new intellectual paths in religion and science? From the perspective of the pros and cons list, accepting the offer looks like a pretty bad decision. There's basically one big pro, money, stacked up against an array of serious cons. Fortunately, though, Priestley largely ignored Franklin's advice and found ways to circumvent the four villains of decision-making. First, he rejected the narrow frame, should I take this offer or not. Instead, he started pushing for new and better options. He considered alternative ways to bring in more income, such as speaking tours to lectures on his scientific work. In the spirit of and, not or, he negotiated a better deal with Shelburne, at a time when people rarely questioned the nobility. Priestley ensured that a tutor, rather than he, would handle the education of Shelburne's kids, and he arranged to spend most of his time in the country with his family, making trips to London only when Shelburne really needed him. Second, he dodged the confirmation bias. Early in the process, Priestley received a strong letter from a friend, who argued vehemently against Shelburne's offer, insisting that it would humiliate Priestley and leave him dependent on a nobleman's charity. Priestley took the objection quite seriously, and at one point he reported that he was leaning against the offer. But rather than stewing over his internal pros and cons list, he went out and collected more data. Specifically, he sought after the advice of people who knew Shelburne, and the consensus was clear. Those who are acquainted with Lord Shelburne encouraged me to accept his proposal, but most of those who knew the world in general, but not Lord Shelburne in particular, dissuade me from it. In other words, the people who knew the Lord best were the most positive about the offer. Based on the converging assessments, Priestley began to consider the offer more seriously. Third, Priestley got some distance from his short-term emotions. He sought advice from friends as well as more neutral colleagues such as Franklin. He didn't allow himself to be distracted by visceral feelings. The quick flush of being offered a 150% raise or the social shame of being thought dependent by a friend, he made the decision based on two factors he cared most about in the long term, his family's welfare and his scholarly independence. Finally, he avoided overconfidence. He expected the relationship to fare well, but he knew that he might be wrong. He worried in particular about leaving his family exposed financially if Shelburne had a sudden change of heart about the arrangement. So he negotiated a sort of insurance policy. Shelburne agreed to pay him £150 a year for life, even if their relationship was terminated. In the end, Priestley accepted the offer, and he worked for Lord Shelburne for about seven years. It would be one of the most prolific periods of his career, the period of his most important philosophical work and his discovery of oxygen. Shelburne and Priestley eventually parted ways. The reasons aren't clear, but Priestley said they separated amicably and Shelburne honoured his agreement to provide £150 a year to the newly independent Priestley. 
Thanks for listening. Good night. Mm-hmm.